It's Thursday, December 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Lots of news out of the CDC recently when it comes to COVID-19. First, the CDC said that the standard 14-day quarantine can be shortened to 10 days or even 7 days if certain criteria are met. It can be 10 days if you're showing no symptoms at all, and 7 days if you get a negative test. New guidelines were also released when it comes to testing before and after travel. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the latest guideline adjustment. Next, a federal vaccine advisory panel has recommended that healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes be the first people to receive any vaccine that might soon be approved. About 40 million doses of vaccine should be available by the end of December, and since it's a two-shot protocol, only about 20 million people will be vaccinated until more can be manufactured. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for this and a new analysis of blood donations that shows coronavirus was infecting people in mid-December of 2019, a few weeks before it was officially identified in China and about a month earlier than the first U.S. case. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think that, you know, one of the the messages I'm not hearing a lot is just stop moving this virus around, right? We are overwhelming hospital capacity throughout the country. Uh, and that means there will not be a bed for somebody who needs it. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about some new guidance from the CDC. This has to do with quarantine periods. For a while now, we've heard that if you're going to be quarantining, it's going to be 14 days. Now the new guidance is they're dropping that down to 10 days, possibly seven days, depending on the circumstances of it all. So Joel, help us walk through some of these new guidelines. Now this is a little complicated, so I'll do my best. And, and <laughs> you know, this is a science-based decision, but it's also one based in how do people actually behave. They felt that anecdotally they were hearing from the various public health agencies, you know, the county health departments, hey, people are not cooperating with the quarantines. They're not doing it. So keep in mind, let's say you've become exposed to the virus. That's when you get quarantined. Not that you have it, not that you're infected, but you might have it. You get identified through contact tracing. You were at the party where someone was known to have the virus. The health department says, okay, you got to quarantine for 14 days. Well, what happens is people... They don't want to do that for 14 days. It's right. too long. They're going to miss work. They're going to lose their job, maybe. They're going to, they need the money. And it creates a kind of a lack of cooperation, a lack of compliance. So they looked at it and said, okay, what if we make it a little bit easier? We'll still get capture most potential infectious people. We'll make it a little bit easier. We'll give two alternatives. One is 10 days if you monitor your symptoms every single day and never have any symptoms. You're supposed to make sure that you don't have a fever, don't have a cough, aren't fatigued. The second thing is you can cut it to seven days if you have a negative test within 48 hours of the end of that seven-day period. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this is kind of what a lot of people were probably doing already, keeping quiet about it. Let's see if I have any symptoms. If not, I'm all good in their heads, right? Because they want to avoid this very strict 14 days, as you mentioned, for a lot of people, they could miss work. They could lose out on a job, a lot of stuff like that. So definitely it makes sense that they could reduce it that way. But it also depends on testing. You know, you got to make sure you get tested in the right period of time. 
I did ask this, and they clarified that, that either of the two main kinds of tests can be used in that last 48-hour period, either the rapid response antigen test or the PCR test. The PCR is more accurate, but it takes a little longer to get the result, and sometimes a couple days or more, maybe right. three days. But, um, you know, to some extent, like you said, people are doing what they're going to do. The government is not going door to door checking on people. A lot of this is voluntary. But the contact tracers, I mean, they're trying to do their job. They call someone up and say, hey, you know, we think you may have been exposed. People don't answer the phone <laughs> right. when, when they get a call from the health department. They're like, hey, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to be part of this system. So they're trying to get better compliance. It eases the burden on the health departments, and it's a little more realistic for people, and it will still capture probably 95 to 99% of the cases. Obviously, they hope that if the quarantine period is lower, you might be more willing to cooperate with a contact tracer. The CDC also released new guidelines about testing before and after traveling. We know that was a huge issue with Thanksgiving, people just rushing to go get tests, and Christmas and New Year's is coming up. What's the new guidance there? What they said before, I mean, like a week or so ago, is in what people have said is, well, try to get a test before you, you take a trip. Now they've gotten a little more specific. They're saying one to three days before your trip, get tested, number one. Number two is when you return from a trip, three to five days afterwards, get tested. And there's another wrinkle in it, which I, now that I think about it, I need to maybe add to my, my latest story, is they're saying that when you come back from a trip, you should essentially stay home. Right. You should essentially quarantine when you get back from the trip, as if you got it on the trip. And they're saying for seven days, cut out all non-essential activities, which is, again, like, are, are people really going to do that? I mean, I, you know, I, I have not been traveling, but I have friends who are, and you know, when they come back from a trip, they come wandering by, you That's know, right. and we socially distance. So, I mean, it's been, I think it's good to put the message out there that when you've been on the road or in an airplane, when you come home, you need to spend seven days of assuming that you might have gotten it. No parties, no running around, just take it easy for seven days. And that's a tough thing too, right? When people take some vacation time, days off of work, they only allot the days that they're actually going to be gone. And when you come back on a, you know, Saturday or something, you're back to work on Monday. And this is the difficulty in controlling people. People are going to do what they want. It's tough. That's why they say it's not worth it. Maybe just don't go travel. But yeah, I mean, it's very tough all around. So we'll see how this new guidance maybe helps. But uh, who knows? If you still get this overwhelming sense that people are going to do what they want to do. And that's, and that's the uh, tough part when yeah. we just see cases rising everywhere. People are going to do, they're going to behave in a certain way, but if you can nudge behavior toward a better path, that'll make a difference. Particularly, you know, right now, where we're in the middle of a bad period, and I think people understand what's going on, but it bears repeating that we are in the middle of a, of a surge, and the numbers are going to keep going up as the virus spreads more easily in some of the big population centers over the next few weeks. And so we're in for a very rough patch before we hit the sunshine, if that makes any sense. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me.
Our goal is to distribute within 24 hours after EUA uh, and the first pushes. Then we want to maintain a cadence, a deliberate, um, uh, planned, uh, coordinated cadence of delivery of vaccine as it becomes available. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. Thanks for having me. We've been getting a lot of news out of the CDC recently. One of the top things that we heard is that the panel that was going to be giving recommendations on who would get the COVID-19 vaccines first has come out with their determination. They're saying that healthcare workers and people in nursing homes should be the front of the line to get the newest vaccines that uh, should be approved pretty soon. So, Betsy, tell us a little bit about what this panel recommended. So there is an expectation that the FDA will authorize the first vaccine, first two vaccines this month. And so everyone is preparing for that. There's a very limited number of doses. So right now, all of the discussion is who's going to get those first doses. And about 40 million doses will be available, but that's enough for 20 million people because people need two doses. So the whole question is now, particularly with this surge, who do you vaccinate first and how are you going to have the biggest impact? And an advisory panel to the CDC has been discussing this issue for months. They voted yesterday overwhelmingly to uh, give those first vaccines to about 21 million healthcare workers and 3 million residents of long-term care facilities. These are the two groups that they have deemed to be most in need of the vaccine and who will have the greatest impact on sort of tamping down or starting to tamp down the spread of the virus. Right. And there's a lot of other people in the conversation, other high-risk populations. There's essential workers, teachers, police, people with underlying health conditions. So we had been hearing for a long time it was going to be healthcare workers and nursing home patients, but there's a lot of people in the mix. Obviously, we need to vaccinate everybody. So uh, there's, there's, right. there's a lot no, of potential populations. There definitely is. And it's a, it's a very tough decision because yeah. there are a lot of people in need. I mean, people at high risk, age 65 and over, I mean, the mortality rates as you go up in age group increases dramatically. So who gets it first? You know, this meeting that they had this week was just about who's going to get those 40 million doses. The next group down will be another debate, essential workers and people over 65 and people who are at higher risk, both older and younger. I mean, all of these people need urgent access to the vaccine. One thing I will say is that even within this top group, this is called phase 1A. There's so many groups are prioritized. They're all group one. It's just like 1A, 1B, 1C. So 1A, you know, initially it was just going to include healthcare workers and nursing home um, residents were added and that there has really been a debate, a discussion between who is the greater need of the vaccine first. If you're going to like decide who of those two groups goes first, nursing home residents or healthcare workers, opinions are divided even on that. And also even the rollout with that, too. You know, we're talking about healthcare workers and they're recommending too. you should probably stagger who gets them and when only because people have said there are side effects with these two vaccines. So you might feel pretty crummy for a couple of days. So if they need to call out of work, all that, you know, you have to really approach it in the right way. We did see that the UK approved the Pfizer vaccine. They also said that they're going to be administering this to nursing homes and healthcare workers first as well, and people over 80 as well. Yeah, I mean, so the reason to give it to healthcare workers is um, these are people who are, are protecting everybody else. So there's there are kind of 
justice and ethical reasons for giving them to them and also practical reasons. The justice, the ethical reasons are obviously these are the people who put their lives on the line to save others. Um, the practical reasons are that uh, you need to keep health workers, um, healthcare workers uh, safe and protected so that they don't get sick um, and so that you have enough of them. And right now, you know, hospitals across the country uh, in hotspots, um, and there are many of them, this, this virus is like on the rise everywhere. Um, you know, hospitals are having trouble keeping numbers of staff and many are actually having to have uh, help employees who have tested positive for COVID-19 but aren't sick. Um, if they've tested positive and aren't sick, they're still um, asked to work because they're so short of, of healthcare workers. So, so that's, you know, the reason to get them vaccinated so you can have a steady staff, steady, steady, um, well-protected staff. You also get, um, by, by vaccinating that group, you get a, a, a broad section of the population, older people, younger people, um, diverse population, and you, 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 there are many healthcare workers who are themselves at high risk. So um, there's a benefit to them. The reason for nursing home um, residents is, um, you know, very compelling. I mean, 40% of the deaths are, are among residents of nursing homes. So they are, these are people at the highest risk. One concern that, that some experts have had about them is that um, data hasn't been made publicly available yet showing how well the vaccine performs um, in older people whose immune systems aren't as strong as, um, as younger people. So um, it's not that the data doesn't exist. It's just it's not widely available. So no one, you know, people are a little bit, some people are a little bit concerned about right. giving these new vaccines using a new technology to um, very vulnerable people uh, early on. But they're going ahead, and New York State, for example, has said um, that it's going to put um, nursing home residents first in line ahead of healthcare workers. The other interesting news that came out of the CDC, and this might give a lot of people relief who said, man, I was so sick in early December, mid-December, that I swear I had coronavirus back then. We're starting to learn more about basically that it was around in mid-December in the United States, weeks before it was officially identified in China maybe about a month earlier than people first said here it was in the United States. And the CDC analyzed blood donations, and they found out that some of that blood had antibodies for coronavirus. So what did they do to find this all out? So blood donations aren't normally kept this long, um, but this was a, a group of samples, blood donations, samples from the Red Cross that had been kept for analysis of another virus, and they were repurposed and sent to the CDC for the CDC to analyze for evidence of how early on in the, in the pandemic there may have been cases in the U.S. So those researchers actually found they looked at December and they looked at a period in January and they did find a few cases in December. There is a caveat. There is what's called cross-reactivity sometimes with coronaviruses and you can't, or with viruses, and um, with some of the samples, it's not 100% certain that they were infected with this particular SARS SARS virus and might have been another coronavirus, but this group did do um, extensive testing and did find um, um, that there were, you know, some cases and so uh, of this particular virus. So, you know, there's no indication from what they found that it was spreading in the U.S. Um, that early on. These would have been isolated cases, mm -hmm. um, nothing big enough to pick up. And the same in early January. So, um, and, and, 
you know, others have been looking at this. It's, it's interesting to, to know that, you know, through the blood supply, you can go back in time and sort of try to piece together what happened, um, right. you know, using and, this methodology. And it does raise a lot of questions, though, about the origins of the virus, obviously. You know, if it was circulating a lot earlier than we thought here in the United States, especially, yes. where was that jump? Where did it happen? What states, what locations were these blood samples from where they found out that the coronavirus was there? They're from nine states across the U.S. The ones um, where uh, there were some positive samples found in December were all West Coast, California, Washington State, and uh, Oregon, I believe. Again, very, very few and isolated cases. And so, you know, in January, the samples found in January were more widespread. There was Connecticut. They looked at samples from Michigan. Um, you know, a few other states. So it really, it, it does show um, or suggest, I should say, that um, that there were what they would call importations or, you know, separated introductions. There's no indication from any of this that there was actual spread that early on. You know, I guess the obvious question then rises, well, is the virus really from China? And, you know, this is a coronavirus that very closely, you know, resembles coronaviruses identified in the bat population in China. So right. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really raise the question that, oh, maybe that this virus came from somewhere else besides China. What it does suggest is that as the, you know, the number of cases was starting to build up in China, there's obviously a lot of global travel. Big lesson here is we're a global world, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and it's, it's, it's not too surprising that there were isolated cases in the U.S. and there have been, you know, studies in, um, that have found cases here and there in in Europe. One in Germany in late December. Certainly by January, you know, there were there were cases, more cases in the U.S. Um, than we knew at the time. Yeah, and that's going to be one of the next big phases of this as we continue to learn about this virus. You know, we're finally getting vaccines. We're finally getting therapeutics for all of this, to treat this better and more effectively. And then we're going to circle, have to circle back completely around to back to the origins. And I know there's a couple of studies already underway that are going back to look at that. Um, so we're going to continue learning about this thing for some time. Uh, you know, hopefully we get over it as, as far as, vi you know, vaccines and all that are concerned. But this virus is going to be with us for some time, and we're going to constantly be learning about it. Most um, public health experts believe that um, this is not something, a virus that we can eradicate or, you know, drive back into nature uh, at this point. We're, we're going to have to live with it. Um, with treatments and vaccines, we can manage it and it, you know, will be like every other virus out there right. that's a threat to us that we, um, that we just have to um, make sure we avoid. So the benefit of knowing the origin is, you know, if you find find the origin that's not only scientifically interesting, but it helps you figure out how to prevent more viruses like it from, um, from spilling over from animals into the population and starting to um, spread. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Divers produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.